0: Hey, welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 180's pre-roll, where I want to just point out some of the uh the fine work that my compatriots and I have been doing here at Lions of Liberty in the hopes that you will support us by virtue of our Patreon, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash lions of liberty. Now, if you've been following along, you're seeing that we're tackling some very important issues. These surround race. These surround guns. These surround police departments. These surround the state's influence on our everyday lives, how that impacts uh, people of all colors and creeds. And we are doing our best to communicate the ideals of liberty and provide practical solutions. You might have seen John Odermatt's seven tenets that he wants to move forward for police reform. Um, That got a lot of attention everywhere. It got republished on Being Libertarian. Jason Stapleton was talking about it. And you also see that Mark's bringing in some of the leaders of the movement like Joe Jorgensen – We're doing the stuff that we think matters, and we hope that you think it matters, too. So again, you can support us for as little as $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty.
1: Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. With your host, Brian McWilliams.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode 180. Oh, another tough week, huh, guys? Another tough one out there. Hopefully, none of your businesses are on fire. Hopefully, none of your businesses were looted. Hopefully, your house made it safely through. And hopefully, your social media feed hasn't been a scene of. Riots like my own was. If you listened to my episode last week with our uh, Lion of Liberty, our fellow Lion, J.B. Lubin, you would have heard about my Facebook feed blowing up because of my outside-the-box posts about how people probably should not be looting and that they are, in fact, different from protesters. But anyway, this show this week is going to actually fulfill the promise of talking about culture, which I think, you know, I do fairly often, but... I want to get a little bit more into the culture side of things. And as such, I have a guest today who uh, harkens back to my past, actually, my theatrical, culturally relevant past, wherein I was, in fact, an actor in a play called Horse Country. And we're going to get a little bit more into that when I bring the guest on. But yes, in my past, back in my collegiate years, I was, in fact, an actor. I went to college at Penn State. I got in on the benefits of my acting ability. And for two years, I was a thespian. And let me tell you, dealing with theater people, actors specifically, not the writers. Writers are fine. Writers are always fine. But the actors, oh my God. Talk about the most grating people on the face of the entire earth. I mean, people that never shut up. People that have to be constantly on, yelling, singing, doing something. Uh, and I don't know, doing massage circles. So that part was okay. But for the most part, you know, just dealing with people who had very little self-awareness, very low self-confidence, I find, is the overarching theme of uh, the acting class. Zero self-confidence and thus constantly needing, craving attention, compliments, reassurances, something to fill the gaping void. Anyway, I was with these people as one of them. And for two years I did it, got rave reviews, A's in all my acting classes, right? And and meanwhile, I know that... Being a a judge of anything, as far as an art or performance is concerned, is subjective. So I'm going along, two years in, I hit this one class. And this class was, was, uh, (laughs) I'll call it refereeing, uh, because basically, again, like I said, you're not really teaching, uh, per se, as much as having people read scenes and giving them your feedback, which is subjective. But this man was famous for basically two things, being an FBI agent, he was like a A black guy probably in his like 50s. He had been an FBI agent in several films. I don't know why he got cast as FBI agent. So like in Die Hard, he was like one of the FBI agents is Die Hard with a Vengeance sitting in the car. That, and for those of you who remember this, and a lot of you youngins might not, there was a commercial, black couples in bed, right? It's a Scope commercial. The wife turns over to kiss the husband and he covers his mouth and he goes, oh no, baby, no, no, no. So that guy was my acting teacher. And the ego on this motherfucker could not be believed. You would have thought that he had starred on Broadway. You would have thought that he had his own series of films that, you know, named after him, Scope Man. No, this guy had been in a commercial that he must probably made a decent amount of money off of. And he had been third, fourth tier parts in a couple of big films. Yet this man sat in judgment of me and clearly did not like me. I don't know why. Didn't like me. But there's a couple scenes I remember. One scene, we're supposed to be tiptoeing across, right? Somebody's sleeping. And the other person's supposed to sneak up to them, right? And like surprise them. And so I'm trying to sneak across this floor in the black box, you know, black box room that all these acting classes take, take place in. And I got big honking feet, you know, and I'm a big tall guy. So as I'm walking the bones in my feet are cracking and there's nothing I could do. You know, there's no amount of acting technique that I can learn. That's going to stop my feet from cracking. But clearly he was infuriated by this infuriated by my cracking feet. That's one thing I remember. Second thing I remember is there was a scene where I was supposed to be playing a guy with a gun, you know, and, and the way I interpreted the character, you know, as is my right as an artist is that I was like, okay, I'm going to use this gun. I'm going to, I'm not going to respect this gun as a weapon of, of deadly, uh, means. I'm going to play it as though I'm so over the top. I'm so irreverent as to my own life or death that I don't treat this gun with respect. I'm putting it to my head. And these are intentional choices. My. This isn't a frivolous decision. So I'm waving it around like a madman, literally like a madman would, who has no concern for his own life, nor the person who I'm threatening. Uh, thus, even more frightening, I would argue, if one has no fear of death and no regard for life or death. After the scene's over. All he can do is talk about the fact that I put the gun to my head and I explained to him that that was a choice, which he responded, he goes, well, I don't agree with it. Oh, you're, you don't agree with my artistic choice, you fucking hack? So the guy, you need to get a B or better to advance in the acting program at Penn State. They gave this guy that authority as gatekeeper, this scope, oh no, no and famous Dingleberry. They gave him this power over advancement or... Ceasing your uh, your advancement, and you had to take the class again. He gave me a C plus, and there was no way I was taking that class again. And thus ended my career formally as an actor. As far as education is concerned, I switched to writing, a far more noble pursuit uh, and far more intellectual pursuit, in my opinion. But I did find my way into the acting realm once more when I got to Los Angeles because. Like so many other people, I moved here trying to write. Harder to get into writing than acting. By far, by far harder to get into because there aren't the extra roles. You know, the extra role in writing is being a PA uh, for a television show. And those jobs are even harder to get than the writing jobs because there's less of them. And they're more in demand because everybody's trying to get them. So I'm putzing around. I'm working, you know, at a tea bar making dumplings in the back, you know, because I was a uh, cook for a lot of years. And my buddy, Dan Mahoney, who's a member of the Pride, comes up and he goes, hey, look, there's going to be a play. My buddy, Matt Wells, who I knew was was making it, he goes, I'd love for, I'd love to do it with you, you know, because he and I go back. We were in high school together. We were in a lot of plays together. Good friends. So I said, OK, great. Let's do it. Turns out this place horse country. I auditioned for the role, got it. And we went on and did, you know, I think it was like a five or six week run. Uh, and, you know, good crowds came out, had a lot of fun. I didn't tell uh, my guest, CJ Hopkins, what I'm going to bring on in a minute. I should have told him this story and I forgot. So CJ, as you listen to this, I hope you appreciate this. Uh, but on uh, the very last time we did the play, we had done it, you know, you do it so many times that you learn it inside out and you don't really have to think about it. And that's really where your, where your performances become the best is when you don't have to think about the next line. And within a ho- horse country, the, cadences and there's a lot of callbacks and a lot of things that, they can be similar. So you could kind of you have to concentrate on what you're saying so you don't accidentally leap forward to another part, which which happened at one point uh, in one of the shows, I think, in week two. As we accidentally skipped a part of the show and just we went off on this on this other line. that was, uh, you know, 10 minutes down the road, none the wiser, and then realized that what we had done and there was no going back at that point. But anyway, this last show. We have a bottle of whiskey on there. We're kind of drinking this whiskey and it's fake the entire time. But the last show, we decided we're going to use real whiskey. And I'll be goddamned if it wasn't the absolute best show that we did of the entire run. So, anyway, that's my story. That's the background. That's why I really am uh, excited to bring on my guest. All right. As mentioned, I am joined by uh, author, playwright, columnist, uh, publisher cj hopkins who as i mentioned in my intro earlier uh, i'm very excited to have on the show because he's a man who actually uh, wrote the play which i was in in los angeles back in my days when i thought that acting was still a thing that i should partake in before i uh, changed my interesting and creative bent towards writing and of course podcasting and that is cj hopkins welcome to electric liberty land hey i'm a uh, pleasure to be here brian thanks yeah, so you know, I mentioned Horse Country. I, I wanted to start off before we get into uh, the heavier topics. Just you know, it's funny that I, I reached out to you on Twitter because a buddy of mine, Dan Mahoney, who was in Horse Country with me, and and Horse Country is a is a a fascinating play. I did it, it was like 15 years now, I think, since I was in it. So I, I'm trying to to bring up what the exactly the the finer aspects of the play, and I'll let you go into that. But it's a it's an interesting vaudevillian approach. Uh, it's a kind of an absurdist play that goes into, I guess. American life, uh capitalism, whether or not certain values stay strong. I mean, how would you describe Horse Country because it's it's definitely a tough play to approach and get into, but one that I really enjoy being in and it was kind of fascinating to uh to see the audience reaction and also just try to give it the the uh, the due it deserved.
1: Um yeah, well Horse Country has been notoriously difficult to describe uh, or to create blurbs for uh, yeah. over the years. <laughs> the the shortest blurb that i've ever come up with is uh that it's basically abbott and costello on acid (laughs) um i I, you know it is all of the things that you just mentioned brian um i i I, you know artistically i it, it was me sort of struggling with uh the existence and the monumental work of samuel beckett and just wondering you know where do you go in the theater after samuel beckett um and, uh, and politically, I think it's just, uh, you know, kind of the same uh, uh, theme that has uh, run through all of my work, which is sort of uh, about authoritarianism and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say mind control, but, but just, you know, ideology in the way that our, that our opinions are formed and, and shaped
0: and what it takes to, to break out of them sometimes hmm Now, let me, tell me a little bit about your background, too. I mean, how did you come to arrive, and, and we were talking a little bit before we started hitting record, uh, about where you would align politically. You know, obviously, I'm a libertarian. You said that uh, you were as libertarian as you are anything else. So what has shaped your worldview to bring you to this point? And then we'll use that as a jumping-off point to get into your current work uh, with Consent Factory. because so I want to talk about the name Consent Factory, too, because I think that'll be something that I'll enjoy hearing about.
1: Yeah. Um, Politically, it sounds like uh, uh, I just take your question politically and, um, you know, politically, uh, uh, you know, I grew up sort of, uh, you know, just politically ignorant, uh, really, in uh, South Florida. And uh, uh, it was my ex-wife who dragged me back into the theater, found me in San Francisco, dragged me back into the theater and also uh, uh, kind of awakened me uh, politically. Um, and, you know, I usually describe myself as some kind of leftist. I don't really know what that means anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh you know, these days I'm not really comfortable with most of, of, of uh, you know, what people think of as leftism these days. Uh, but I still am, you know, a leftist to a certain degree. And, 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 uh, you know, for example, I, 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 I like, I enjoy living here in Germany in Berlin where, you know, um, everybody gets to, to uh, have a, an affordable education and mm. a university education and everybody has healthcare. And, uh, you know, I'm glad. And, and, and I believe that if there's going to be a government that the government has the responsibility to, to, uh, provide, uh, those basic things to all of its citizens. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, yeah, there's uh, definitely a lot of libertarianism <laughs> running through my mentality as well. Um, you know, I, I, uh, uh, I don't know, pick your topic and, uh, you know, guns, I think people should be allowed to have them. Um, I think basically that that the government should be uh, as non intrusive as absolutely possible Mm -hmm. and leave people the most individual freedom that is absolutely possible to still have a civilized society.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Now, how did you end up in Berlin? Because obviously going from South Florida to San Francisco to Berlin is quite the trek. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> because I, I was surprised when I saw where you were where you were based and where you're, you're writing from. Uh, and obviously things in Germany and Berlin have mirrored quite a bit of what's going on in the United States and, and to a little bit of a shocking degree. Um, when we talk about the Floyd stuff, which which we'll get to in, in a bit. But um, yeah, how did you end up in Berlin?
1: Uh, another long story, and this is what happens when you get old is everything becomes a long story. Uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it as short as possible. As I said, I grew up in uh, Miami in uh, South Florida. And this was, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s before, you know, Miami became more of a cultural hotspot. Um, and at that time, it really wasn't. So uh, basically, as soon as I figured that I was free to leave, and, and had the means to do so, I took off uh, for San Francisco. And I was going to be a beat poet. Uh, I was going to go out there like
0: oh, Jack Kerouac and be a beat poet. You had already gotten your beret. You bought in all your yeah. black turtlenecks. You had the whole thing. All that. All that.
1: <laughs> and and uh, so I was out there for a few years um, uh, writing really bad poetry. And, uh, and then, uh, like I, as I say, I met my ex-wife and uh, she's a theater uh, director. She pulled me back into the theater. And then, you know, soon enough, we were out in California. We figured, okay, we're theater artists. We've got to go to New York City. So ended up working, you know, off off Broadway and and downtown in New York City for 15 years and uh, basically got lucky, you know, with horse country in 2002 um, overseas in Scotland, you know, at the Edinburgh Festival and won a bunch of awards. And then things, you know, my work started to spread out a little bit more internationally. And once again, I realized that I was free to leave New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't need to stay there in my terribly expensive you know, closet that I yes. was uh, living in, and I wanted, to, I, I, I wanted to get out of the states i wasn 't real happy there after uh, September eleventh and, um, and all of the cultural changes that, that came into being and Berlin was really the easiest city in Europe for me to try to set up camp in at that time. It was quite easy for an American to uh, to move to Berlin and, and you know get a residency
0: permit and set up shop. Mm-hmm. And here I am all these years later. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, obviously, you enjoy your uh, your city there. And I've never had the chance to go to Berlin. A few years ago, I had uh, had a planned trip to Germany, which, unfortunately, I, a, I couldn't follow through with. But, um, you know, you said you moved away from the United States following 9-11 and obviously the authoritarian uh, intrusive policies as far as NSA spying, domestic issues. How does that shape up as far as Germany? I, I know Germany and the United States were working in tandem with the uh, with what Edward Snowden had exposed our two secret uh, deep state uh, alliances. But how is it there compared to the United States? If you had to tip- give a thirty second synopsis, is it better? Is it worse? Is it efficiently the same? It's the same and different.
1: Um, you know, in in one sense, you know, Germany, uh, you know, uh, Germany is. In a sense, still under occupation by the United States, or yeah, by true. you know, or by the Western powers, it's a part of that uh, that that nexus of Western <laughs> power, and pretty much goes along with uh, uh, with whatever the United States is doing. On the other hand, I live in Berlin, which is not really Germany. Hmm. Uh, you know, Berlin is to Germany as you know New York used to be to the rest of uh, uh, you know of the United States, and so Berlin has a, a, a just a unique history that's impossible to describe in uh, uh, in 30 seconds, but it, it is much more uh, libertarian, if you will, much more uh, um, anti-authoritarian. Um,
0: well, I guess, and, like you said, uh, considering the history there, you would imagine that people would have a, a distinct anti-authoritarian streak and, and more of a bent towards libertarianism and probably capitalism, I mean, going from uh, from a split society into one that's merged together and seeing the benefits that a free market, or at least uh, somewhat of a free market can provide an open culture and open sharing of information. So, yeah, I would imagine.
1: It's yeah, I think it's more of a general anti-authoritarianism in Berlin. you know there's uh, uh, you know, there's the 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 remnants of, you know they call them the sixty eight generation um, who, are, who would probably be more opposed to capitalism and more opposed uh, uh, to all of that. And then, of course, there's also the the folks who grew up under the the DDR the GDR, um, and so it's I, I would describe it as a general anti-authoritarianism. <laughs> anything that anything that bridles of the government or the state, you know, clamping down on people is not met with uh, you know a lot of uh,
0: happiness here. <sighs> sounds sounds like a lovely place to live. Um, so yeah. tell me a little bit about. Consent Factory, because so Consent Factory is a website. You could go to consentfactory.org and find all of CJ's uh, your blog posts, your essays. You can also find your books, uh, Trumpocalypse, and also Zone Twenty Three, which I'm currently reading, and I'll we'll come back to that at the end of the show. Um, why Consent Factory
1: as a name? Uh, uh, I, you know, obviously inspired by Chomsky, you know, and uh, and his seminal book with Edward Herman, you know, Manufacturing Consent. Uh, um, and what uh, what Consent Factory is, I mean, you know, don't tell anyone, Brian, it's a, you know, it's a big <laughs> secret that, you know, the Consent Factory is really just a separate organization that I have nothing to do with except for the fact that, you know, it's my blog and that I own it. Um, And uh, I set it up in, uh, I think, in 2016, which is really when I started uh, writing my uh, political satire and and my essays. Um, You know, before that, I was just really focused on my artistic work. Um, And I just I really got engaged during the 2016 campaign because I started paying just attention to the intense propaganda machine that was operating at the time. And uh, and so that's uh, that's really what the, what Consent Factory is focused on is, is just uh, uh, the propaganda that we are all being bombarded with you know constantly um, in the West yeah, and hopefully yeah. hopefully trying to cut through some of it and and present a little bit of an of analysis.
0: And uh, so I didn't have a chance to read the Trumpocalypse essay. So it was a series of essays, which you had then comprised and uh, and put into a book format, which is available to buy on your website and I think on Amazon. So what? tell me a little bit about that. And also, I'm curious to see how, how that has evolved from 2016 until now. When you talk about the prop, prop, propagandization, sometimes my brain gets ahead of my mouth there. Um of society and I couldn't agree more in that regard. But having not read the essays, I mean, what was your take on what you saw unfolding during the election and in the aftermath? Uh
1: before I answer your question, Brian, let me just uh, a couple of things. Um first of all, don't make me say that word. Propaganda (laughs) does the issue. (laughs) Possible. and second of all, uh, people can get my book anywhere. They can get it on Amazon, or you know, uh, a bookstore, or Indie Bound, or basically just walk into any bookstore and, and ask for it and order it. Um, uh, my take on the whole thing, um, uh, and uh, uh, a lot of people are kind of confused about my take on the whole thing. I'm not a Donald Trump fan. Um, uh, never have been. Lived in the same city with the man for many many years. Think right. We have to. We,
0: everybody. Ha- we have to put that uh, precursor to yeah, okay. everything in society today. Right. I got to get this disclaimer in, yeah. you know, pretty much everywhere.
1: Um, uh, no, nonetheless, you know, what what my take on the whole thing is is, you know, what what we began to see in 2016, really first with the Brexit and uh, and then with the Trump's campaign, and to a degree with Bernie Sanders, is 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 this uh, sort of populist backlash, I think, um, against uh, you know globalized capitalism. So um, my take on the whole thing, and, and see if I can get it uh, uh, somewhat concise, you know, in 1989 or 1990, the last real, ideological, you know, adversary to globalized capitalism disappeared. That was the end of the USSR, right? Um, from then on, it has been a big, one big global capitalist world. And what has been happening since then is Global capitalism has been restructuring the planet, restructuring, you know, primarily in the Middle East, but also in the former Soviet bloc and, and so on. And that's what we've been witnessing, you know, since then, um, there really aren't any outside adversaries. All of the adversaries are internal, you know, mm-hmm. um, the first ones were terrorists, naturally, you know, the terrorists and the extremists. You know, these are internal adversaries. And what happened in 2016 is we started to see um, a populist backlash uh, coming from the people who uh, were just, I think, kind of fed up with, um, you know, austerity in the UK. I'm not sure what to call it in the US, Mm. Um, uh, you know, and uh, a lot of the values uh, that are being rammed down people's throats as well. Um, And this populist backlash bubbled up. And uh, I think the American people basically elected Donald Trump. Uh, Can I curse on your show?
0: Oh, please have at it.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I think uh, the American people. Uh, there's a theory on the in the in the uh, uh, professional left, you know, that basically Donald Trump was elected because most Americans are white supremacists. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> who worship Adolf Hitler. It, it, despite um, Barack Obama being in office for uh, yeah. the pace the eight years, yeah,
1: eight years, yeah. That's not my theory. Um, uh, my theory is that you know Donald Trump got elected as just sort of a big fuck you to. The you know entire uh, 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 system mm-hmm. that was represented by Clinton Obama, and the whole gang, and I think people were just like, "No, we're not going to suck on another eight years of of these people mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so we're going to elect you know this uh clown if we have to um,
0: yeah. well, I mean I think it's it closely mirrors I mean look at at the Ukrainian president, you know they literally elected a comedian, and mm-hmm. that's where You know, for for better or worse, I thought for better, but I'm happy with the libertarian candidate, which is uh, Joe Jorgensen, a a female doctorate who's a lecturer at Clemson, you know, a very well-established, intelligent woman. But I had actually supported a character, uh, a living meme named Vermin Supreme, and I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. (laughs) Yes, I have.
1: Yeah, I just followed him on Twitter the other
0: day. Oh, okay, fantastic. So. I had basically taken that theory though because I agree with it that it was an anti establishment fuck you to the system and fuck you to everybody which really ushered Donald Trump in, I think combined with also a back of the mind fear that people did have you know and and I would say probably middle of the country white America as far as a, a worry about immigration as you said, a worry about global capitalization and, and capitalism and outsourcing and them not having jobs which which trump you know he tapped into that, but in that vein of Some people are just going to want the outsider and want to have something completely different. I had supported Vermin Supreme, and he got fairly far in the nominating process before, unfortunately, being eliminated. But to your point, I think people are seeing far more, and it's being exposed. I think one of the good things about Donald Trump is we're seeing by virtue of his calling out the media, calling out the deep state on certain things and the reaction to it, that he is exposing some of the thought control devices and exposing, I mean, God, the entire Russia collusion thing could not be more transparently bullshit. And yet you have half the country completely buying into it and having, you know, Trump derangement syndrome, of course, is the phrase du jour, but I can't think of a better term for it. So, you know, is that something that you were covering uh, when you were writing? And, and do you think that's come about more predominantly in current day? Like, do you think people are waking up or not? <laughs>
1: um, I, I I don't know if people are waking up. It's absolutely something that I was covering, um, um, and it's covered in uh, in that book. The uh, second volume will be out uh, sometime soon. It's it's what I've been covering in all of my uh, um, essays. You um, know, uh, another thing you just mentioned, it Brian, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the the, the issue of immigration and um, and the nationalism, obviously mm-hmm. the Trump. Um, is selling, and again, you know, in in the professional, you know, leftist uh, world that I swim in, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, there's only one possible position that one can take on this, and and here again, where is where my analysis has been a bit heretical because when I look at that, you know, you know, you can look at that and say, okay, these are xenophobic people who want to, you know, who are, who hate foreigners and blah blah blah, or what you can look at is is really what 's happening is as as globalized capitalism is spreading, part of what it 's doing is it's eroding and dissolving uh, uh, national sovereignty mm-hmm. um, yeah. i i don't think brexit was i don't think brexit was a you know a racist you know hysterical reaction i I think that underlying a lot of uh, 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 these things that are being labeled xenophobic and labeled racist i think underlying all uh, of these things is a recognition on the part of people that what's happening is that nation states are dissolving and they're losing their sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And more and more power is being located in a very diffuse, you know, global network that people don't really understand and don't really have any control over. Well, especially mm-hmm. in the
0: case of of brexit, I think, um, you know leaving the European Union, I was reading quite a bit about that, and just the fact that people have no control over the officials that are dictating uh, what regulations and what taxes and what can go in and out of borders. I mean, you could understand why people would rebel against that, and quite logically so, but the left uh, that wanted to stay in the eu had positioned it as such wherein. You are racist, and and that's you know we see that across so many different topics now, where that cudgel of racism or xenophobia is used over and over again to reject anything, whether it's economical, whether it's cultural. Um, it doesn't seem to matter, and there are no boundaries to what can be considered or wrapped into this blanket of xenophobia. Yeah, one of
1: the the one of the tropes that I use constantly in my essays and it's in the books and whatever is is the the Putin Nazis.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: um, you know, um, and basically what happened, you know, is you know this this populist backlash emerged, and rose up, and uh, the the basic globo globocap is what I call them for short, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, basically the response to it was uh, to delegitimize it and demonize it, uh, you know, rather than you know, of course, from their perspective. Uh, there's no benefit in, in analyzing, you know, why this resistance is, right. is rising up, um, you know, uh, and their response. It, it, it's been the last four years, I think, have, have been the most uh, uh, intense display of propaganda activity that I've ever lived through in my life. And a lot of it is is it comes down to the reason I came up with this Putin Nazi trope. Um, is, is that's basically the two tracks that the establishment has been using to delegitimize and demonize people. It's, you know, you, you mentioned Russiagate before, and, and of course, it was ridiculous to anyone, you know, mm. who was actually thinking and paying attention. Um, but the fact is that it has been incredibly effective. People yeah. still to this day Um, You know, will you know, uh, respond to other people by saying, you know, it's like, you know, oh, where are you? You know, you're based in Moscow or, you know, you know, as if as if there are Russian agents everywhere, you know, trying to, to, you know, undermine America. And the other track um, has been the fascism hysteria. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the two tracks that the establishment has been pushing um, uh, relentlessly for four years whipping up Russia hysteria on one hand and fascism hysteria on the other hand. And God help me, you know, but I'm, I know I'm in Berlin, I'm not in the United States, but it doesn't appear, you know, it doesn't appear that Trump has actually, you know, uh, uh, launched the fourth right or anything.
0: No, it is amazing. I was watching a, a video actually just today. Some, some people had sent it to me of a woman hysterically, calling, you know, calling out to the left and warning them about the impending Holocaust that Trump is going to be bringing upon us because she got an email uh, that was intended for a Trump fundraising pack that said, hey, we're going to send you a you know, camouflage MAGA hat. And we know that you're one of the dedicated that's going to push back against the left, you know, the army of the left. And she's crying into the camera because she's convinced that Trump is in fact going to be forming an army and going to war against the minorities and the left and, and all these other things. And you do shake your head in wonder because the average person, the impact Trump has had upon their life is negligible. The only, the only impact he's really had on them is probably within their own minds or possibly that their salt deduction uh, it changed, or they got more or less in a tax refund. Other than that, probably negligible. Yet they are so absolutely obsessed with the concept that he is the greatest evil that mankind has ever faced that they can't see beyond it. And I think this is a very useful tool for so many things because we're talking about global cap, right? And you know, for me, for my libertarian bent, I, I you know, believe in, in totally open and free markets. But as you talk about a lot in, in your book uh, that I'm reading currently in your essays, the Capitalize or the uh, the globalization and the capitalism within the worldwide system is in fact based a large part in crony capitalism, which nobody acknowledges. Uh, You know, it, it seems like the left in power and the right in power are both very content to go along with it. And meanwhile, we have all these different distractions that are, you know happily uh, put in front of us COVID and uh, racial issues and equality issues constantly to keep us looking somewhere else while wealth is siphoned away and inequality becomes even greater. Yeah, uh, yeah, abs- absolutely. I'm sorry, sorry I, I put a lot of concepts into that <laughs> one rant there. I apologize. I always do that. I kind of get going and then I gotta, so.
1: <laughs> it's, it's uh, 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 where was I gonna jump in? I um I, your, your concept, I'm not familiar enough you know, with libertarianism, I know that the, there's a distinction uh, among libertarianisms between capitalism per se and uh, crony capitalism, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's it's probably again. You know, I I am essentially a leftist. Uh, uh, I don't uh, I don't see us taking an immediate leap into you know beneficial socialism from where we are. Moment, <laughs> no, neither do I <laughs> at the moment. You know. Uh, uh, you know, but at the same time I have, I, you know, I have a, a, a philosophical, you know, uh, opposition to uh, uh, capitalism, but I think part of the reason that um, when I use the term in my essays and just generally I use the term global capitalism mm-hmm. um, because what I'm talking about really isn't, you know, a guy with a store and four employees, And you know somebody who's got a machine shop and you know fifty people running machines and and stuff like that. This is not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm I'm talking about the global, the dominant global. Structure, governing power structure that exists in our world today, which you know I don't have time or, or brain energy to <laughs> try to explicate right here on your podcast. Um, but I think it's it's probably closer to what you guys are describing as crony
0: capitalism. I I would imagine that's and that's why I mentioned in that way is that it does seem when we get into these macro levels of of trade and economics and yeah it's it's the the government and, uh, the powers, you know, the elite powers that be really controlling how things are working out, who's benefiting and who's, uh, not getting the most of it. And it's always to the, uh, it's never to the benefit of the small businessman. It's never to the benefit of the entrepreneur. It's always to the benefit of the biggest of big businesses. Uh, and yeah. it's enabled by government uh, with excess regulation and hurdles to get into it and, and tax breaks and all these other things.
1: And, and, you know, and from my perspective, you know, coming more from the left, um, you know, you, you're talking about a machine. You're talking about a machine that dissolves national boundaries, mm-hmm. and in a sense, creates you know a global working class. Yeah. Uh, so that manufacturing, so that U.S. manufacturing can be offshore to China and uh, Asia and various uh, other places where wages are incredibly low, and uh, you know the uh, the protections aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know you end up with American workers. Uh, you know, competing with uh, Chinese workers and Bangladeshi workers, um, and what have you, um, and and this system, you know, that type of globalization leads to what we've got in the United States, which is a lot of people living in 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 uh, you know debt enslavement mm. um, and unable to uh, uh, make enough money to you know feed their families and have a decent standard of living. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I started rambling on. Uh, oh, no, it's okay. Uh, well, let's, I want
0: to, I want to jump to, um, actually so I'm. I'm cause I don't want to take up too much of your time, but try to keep it to about an hour. Uh, cause okay. I know it's, it's later there. So I wanted to jump to, you know, we're talking about propaganda and how you're seeing over the past three years and God, especially within the past three months, um, the most absolute brazen use of propaganda against domestic populations that I've ever witnessed, and you've written quite a bit about COVID and what's going on with the coronavirus response, with the lockdowns and the expansion of the authoritarian state. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. And two of your essays, I'll read, I actually, you know, I'll let you talk about the overall concept behind them. And then I do want to read a quote specifically from, I believe, Virus of Mass Destruction, uh, because you've written three essays recently, The Brave New Normal, parts one and two, and Virus of Mass Destruction. So tell me a little bit about what your overarching Viewpoint is on this, and then I'll get into the quote.
1: Um, this is it's such a it's such a maddening uh, issue, uh, Brian. It's another one of these completely polarized issues um, where you know everyone is at each other's throats on both sides. Where I came at it um, uh, from the beginning was you know I, I I I saw it starting to unfold, and I went looking for the you know solid data, the solid facts. That uh, justified the type of authoritarian uh, measures that governments all over the world were putting into place, um, and i couldn 't find them you know mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, i couldn 't find it, and the more I looked uh, uh, the more i couldn 't find it and Then I started tracking the uh, you know just the mass hysteria and the propaganda that was yep. being popped out in the death trucks and the you know, and the, the death ship that was being sent into the harbor and the, you know, field hospitals that were mm-hmm. being set up. You know, All of which, which seemed sat, to treat
0: nobody at the end nobody, of the day. They, you know, almost, they, almost nobody.
1: <laughs> they, they, and they sat empty. And uh, and, and just the, the pure illogic the idea that this is some new, you know, Martian virus that mm-hmm. doesn't behave like any other virus that's ever existed. And, you know, no one will develop immunity from it uh, because you can't develop immunity. But, you know, we got to get a vaccine, a vaccine as soon as possible uh, to immunize you from this virus that you can't be immune to or some. And it's just the 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 propaganda was absolutely intense. And the data, the facts were not there. Um, uh, there's a, a one of the <coughs> excuse me, one of the. Uh, outlets that republishes my essays off Guardian Mm -hmm. have done a really excellent job at just kind of pushing for data and probing for details and kind of analyzing the data that was being put out there Um, and talking and and collecting, you know, other experts, the experts that weren't being uh, foregrounded in the corporate media. Um, uh, who were expressing dissenting views, um, and you know, the the facts it, as they were have been out there from the very beginning of this, and they just haven't matched the propaganda and the mass hysteria. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where we are right now, I mean, I, I I I think it's going to be a really really weird period. I I, I think people have slowly been realizing that that it is propaganda and <laughs> mass hysteria. Well. I don't- um, Half and, and half. And I
0: mean, you, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Continue.
1: You know, it, it's you know, and, and I think it was just uh, yesterday the, the the World Health Organization finally you know uh, came out and said you know no there is you know really the asymptomatic transmission is extremely rare mm-hmm. you know so again there's no need for all of us healthy people to be walking around with masks on and you know but at this point again and I, and, and this was in one of my essays at this point the the narrative the narrative is completely divorced from the actual reality. And we, we're, we're prisoners of the narrative.
0: Yeah. 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 I agree completely. It's, and it does mirror uh, in a way the, the same thing with the Trump and Russia Gate. to go back to that is that once people have latched onto this narrative, this mainstream narrative, it becomes, it, it becomes its own demon. And then also it seems as though people are, and i see this happen politically, and, and and this, of course, COVID became politicized as well because it became a left versus right, where the right wanted to open up, and you know, then the mask became a symbol of left versus right, at least in America, and people became so attached to their version of the narrative. And I think when you have a situation like this, where you're locked down, right, you're forced to give up your business, your economy is crumbling, uh, you know, 40 million people in the U.S. are out of work. When people accept that sort of authoritarian response and don't fight back against it, it's almost mentally, to protect your own ego, mentally in their best interest to say, I had to do this and there was no other option. I couldn't have been wrong because to admit otherwise would mean that you have completely destroyed something, uh, destroyed everything for no reason at all. Exactly
1: and, I, and, and and I think I made that, uh, that point uh, uh, that was the central point of one of my essays. Um, it, it's, it's, and that's what I meant by it's going to get it, it's weird now and it's going to get even weirder um, because people are now going to be faced with the fact that there was never. A real justification for the authoritarian measures that were put into place, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the police, you know, the, the, the police were, you know, body slamming, you know, mothers and yeah. ripping their kids out of their arms, you know, for not wearing their masks properly.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, you know, people are now going to be faced or being faced with the fact that, that of course, there was absolutely no justification. For the imposition of these type of measures, and so what are you going to do? It's like you know Germans after the Second World War, and you ask them, you know, what you do during the war,
0: Dad? Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Well, let me read a quick quote from uh, the virus. I believe it's from Virus of Mass Destruction, and this is where like, like we're talking about. Um, well, I'll just read the quote. It's all right there in black and white. They aren't hiding the totalitarianism. They don't have to because people are begging for it. They are demanding to be locked down inside their homes, forced to wear masks and stand two meters apart for reasons that most of them no longer remember. Plastic barriers are going up everywhere. Arrows on the floor show you which way to walk. Boxes show you where to stand. Paranoid. Block warts are putting up signs threatening anyone not wearing a mask. Historical little fascist creeps are reporting their neighbors to the police for letting their children play. With other children. Uh, There's more to that. I'll skip ahead a little bit, but the internet has become an Orwellian chorus of shrieking, sanctimonious voices, bullying everyone into conformity with charts, graphs, and desperate guilt trips, few of which have connection to reality. Corporations and governments are censoring dissent. We're approaching a level of manufactured mass hysteria and herd mentality that not even Goebbels would have imagined. And I read that, and I you know, and I do I, again compliments to your writing style, which I greatly enjoy. Um, Thank you. But it ties into what we're talking about, and also I wonder at some point. You know, we're talking about the tactics being used, people being trained to follow and conform, and go and go in the box and go in the arrow, and they go and gone along with it, and are begging for more, and they're turning on their neighbors, 1984 esque style. On some level, do you wonder? You know, I don't. I don't get into conspiracy theory. That's not really my thing. But on some level, I do wonder, you know, how far governments would go to condition people mentally to accept this type of thing and whether or not they knew, you know, how, how early did they know that this was all nonsense and did they continue to go along and to, to condition people? I mean, do you buy into that sort of thinking at all? Um, I'm not into, I'm not, uh, 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 I don't tend to get very uh,
1: conspiracist uh, myself. I tend to see things more systematically. I've never really been interested in, uh, you know, in finding the guys who are sitting in the room, you know, making the
0: plan.
1: <laughs> the smoking man. Yeah. I, I, I just, I don't think things work that way. Uh, no. I, I think what, I think what happens is that everyone who is in a position of power uh, they don't need, there doesn't need to be a conspiracy. They don't need, you know, someone to call them up and tell them what to do. They know what to do. Yeah, you know, the 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 government knows what to do. The media knows what to do. The pundits know what to do. Uh, you know, the academics and the culture industry—they know what to do. And what to do is conform. Yeah. You know, and what what I'm seeing systemically, you know, regardless of where it's coming from and how orchestrated it is. Um, is is just and you know you mentioned you're reaching you're reading Zone Twenty Three and it's mm-hmm. basically where I'm coming from with that, is just this uh, this m- massive um, campaign to uh, uh, generate and and reinforce conformity mm-hmm. to whatever, it, it yeah. you know it, it's it's like it almost doesn't matter and in 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 in, in some ways it's like the, the thing that we are supposed to conform to, you know, the more ridiculous, the better, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's like, you know, no, we really need you to believe that Vladimir Putin is running Donald Trump, (laughs) you know, as a Russian asset. He's been a sleeper agent in New York city, all this stuff. No, no, no. we need you to believe that there's a, a completely new Martian virus you know that doesn't operate in any of the ways that we know viruses operate you know or anything and it's it's just and it's going to just kill you you know if you if you you know walk within 20 feet of you know it you, you know what i'm saying is the the narratives the it's almost it's almost designed uh, to test you know people's conformity their willingness to conform to yeah. the most ridiculous things. I, you know, I'm, I'm here in Berlin and, and uh, the lockdown is, is, is has been eased and, you know, people are going back to normal life and it's very interesting to watch uh, uh, how quickly, and again, it's Berlin, so people abandon the masks, you know, just oh, yeah. immediately. But there are still people walking around, you know, with, with masks on. And, and I'm not talking about old people or people who are obviously infirm. I'm talking about perfectly healthy young people who are out jogging with masks on. Oh, yeah. Or and who are riding in we, their cars alone. With masks on, yes, driving. Yes, driving alone <laughs> in their What are you doing? What are you doing? With, with masks on. One thing that's interesting is uh, on the. Uh, and we have to wear masks if we want to go into a grocery store. Right yeah, we us we, too. We, we can't buy food without masks. It's the law in in in, in Germany. Um, and so, on the front of my mask, I have written uh, the phrase "Befehl ist Befehl," mm-hmm. and what this means is it. It's the phrase that the Nazis used in Nuremberg when they were saying we were just following orders. Ah, okay. Yeah. It means an order is an order. And so it's really kind of offensive and provocative for me to have this on the front of my mask.
0: (laughs) Hey guys, I want to tell you about a brand new sponsor we have here at the Lions of Liberty. They have come aboard longtime listeners who run the company called Lorenzati Coffee. Now Lorenzati Coffee is from a couple of coffee lovers who ended up in Utah of all places and couldn't find a good cup of coffee or an authentic Italian espresso to save their lives. So, they went on their way to find a roaster in Naples who would work with them and start importing that coffee which turned into Lorenzati. So, they found there's a market for the coffee itself but also a lot of entrepreneurial people out there who wanted to start their own coffee shops. So, they decided this is going to be incorporated in their business. So they're working with people to get equipment. Uh, they're financing it. They rent it out, help them with maintenance, help them with all these different things. So these guys are not only libertarians who are helping us out, helping to spread the message of liberty. And of course, Zachary Muse is who uh, I'd like to thank personally for reaching out and getting this going. But they're also helping other entrepreneurs to do it as well. So for a great cup of coffee, I want you to use the code LIONS and go to Lorenzotti.coffee. That's L-O-R-E-N-Z-O-T-T-I.coffee. And use that promo code. You're going to get 10% off. And make sure, by the way, you order at least two tins of coffee because it's free shipping for orders over $15. Doesn't make much sense to order just one tin. And uh, yeah, enjoy that cup of coffee. Start your day with a roar and help some libertarians while you're at it. What is the response to that from the people? Do, are people nodding along with it? Do they do they overall get it or do some people uh, treat you as though you're, you've broken a taboo?
1: that's exactly where i was going the uh, watching the responses to it has been fascinating because some people smile and nod and (laughs) wink right (laughs) and they get it and other people look at me as if you know i am satan you know with horns shooting
0: up out of the top of my head yeah i mean Um, it's amazing the how this has split people so thoroughly and then you know you get into and I know that you know, I think Berlin's had the same kind of response to George Floyd's killing, but we're looking at the transition from COVID lockdown America and COVID lockdown the world over, wherein we're being forced to stay home and, and shutter our businesses and alter the very way that we live, uh, which I think is highly dangerous for social animals like people are in general. And I think that a lot of it, what's happened post-COVID with these responses and the, and the, uh, the protesting and the rioting and everything else, is a response to the lockdown as much as it is to, to what actually happened in, with uh, George Floyd. But it's fascinating to watch the split where people who were telling you, you can't go out without a mask, you're going to kill people, uh, you're literally, you know, as they said, you're going to kill grandma, you have medical workers up in arms and getting applauded in the streets that now have said, we believe that rioting and protesting is more important than COVID, so go out and do it. And it just could not be more blatantly... An absolute reversal of positions, and almost overnight. It's it's it
1: it, and it's it's Brian. It's more than a reversal of positions. It's psychotic. Yeah. Um, It's (laughs) what what it is. It it really is, and it's the kind of thing that drives people mad. You know, if you you know you you spend three months, you know, uh, basically disseminating a reality say, you know, folks, this is the reality. There's this killer virus and everyone has to stay home and we have to have, you know, police on the beach to arrest yeah. people, you know, if they try to, you know, because this virus is so dangerous and, you know, so deadly and everything. And then in the course of one or two days, right, to completely say, no, 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 it's great that everyone go out and, you know, and, and mingle, which is basically saying that whole reality that we just spent so long introducing and getting you to conform to that whole reality. We just turned it off like a switch, Mm -hmm. right? We just turned that reality off like a switch. And now the reality is completely the opposite. It's no, there's no problem. You know, no, go out and, you know, protest and, you know, burn some stores down and stuff. That's all, that's all completely fine. No COVID worries there. And what I'm waiting for is for them to flip the switch back.
0: Oh, you, well, you know they will. They'll say that the yeah. second wave that's now coming because of the riots, which were absolutely necessary because killing people in, for this cause is better than killing people for the cause of people's businesses, or whatever you might think, or freedom. Um, they will without a doubt flip it and say that the second wave now mandates a new lockdown. I mean, I can already see it happening. I can already it's see a- the news headlines
1: being written. And 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 Brian, what we're what we're really talking about, I mean, the reason that I that I mentioned you know uh, psychosis, is this is exactly <laughs> this is exactly the type of stuff cult leaders do, mm-hmm. in order to break down people's minds and generate conformity, you know, and 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 uh, submissiveness to the cult, yeah. you know, this, this is exactly what you do is you change reality back and forth on people until their minds snap.
0: Right. Yeah. How many how many lights do you see? I see yeah. two lights, no, beat him, okay, how many lights do you see now, okay, three lights, okay uh, yeah, it's exactly, exactly right, and you know, talking a little bit more about the George Floyd uh, protests and what's going on, you wrote a uh, article recently called the Minneapolis Putch, and you talk about how. It's interesting that people are, you know, accusing the other side of that, which you were guilty, uh, how the resistance had been telling everybody that Trump is literally Hitler and that he's been fomenting racial hatred and white supremacists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but now it looks like we've instead seen the media. Let's see. I'm trying to, comp- you know, what? I'm getting off. I'm I'm totally I'm confusing right. my own point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got, I, I got you, Brian. Because I'm trying to scan to see where I was trying to end up. But yeah, if you get it, they'll go with it. <laughs> I got you, Brian.
1: I'm right in the middle of writing a follow up uh, essay to that last essay, um, and I'm uh, uh, just getting uh, uh, incredible amounts of shit. Um, for oh, I'm, my, I'm sure, I'm sure you um, are on on this, um, uh, because you know what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing, and let me again put this disclaimer right out in the front. Um, you know, there there is an organic uh, protest uprising here. Of course, there is. Um, there has there has been often the cops have you know killed a lot of black people mm-hmm. over the years, and very often after the cops kill a black people, uh, kill a black person, there are protests and there are riots and, and people rise up, and that is absolutely organic and there's nothing staged about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's it's an understandable phenomenon that occurs. That being said, (laughs) what we are witnessing here, pretty obviously, is the result of that four solid years of propaganda and, and, and mass hysteria that I was talking about before. You know, this is the result of that. They have been telling us that Trump is, you know, a racist Hitler who wants to murder all the Jews and the black people and the Mexicans. For four years, solid, and, yeah. and many of them have been very specific in saying Trump is waiting to create a Reichstag event, and he's going to then declare himself dictator and declare martial law and roll out the tanks. And you know, it, when you look at at what has happened here, and again, there's an organic, an authentic, organic, you know, protest uprising at the center of it, but all around it, what what you what if you look at it what you're seeing is just a classic regime change op yeah in progress you yeah, know exactly. really not that different than you know Tunisia and Egypt and you know and uh, the attempt in Venezuela and and so on that what you're seeing is the result of four years of relentless conditioning right yeah it took it took i don't know 24 hours for these protests to mushroom into international protests and rioting, right? No coincidence. Focused, focused, focused not really so much on the cops as on Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's like I had posted. I think, and maybe even after reading your article, I had I had posted a screed on uh, on Twitter, uh, going off and just chastising people. These, you know, the anti anti Trump people for for trying to associate Donald Trump with, you know, specifically with this is his fault. I mean, completely uh, re- disregarding the fact that both parties on the left and the right have for years gone down the same road of militarization of police, of over-policing, of, of, en- of engaging and uh, raising up the drug war, which disproportionately affects black communities. I mean, all these things are, are equal parts. You know, they're both complicit in, the, in this in this attack on, basic humanity, but also that's disproportionately affected black people. And what I really liked from your, your piece, and this is what I, I was scanning and trying to skip down for, it and I finally found it is that I liked that you finished this up, up this piece kind of saying, look, I'm chastising the people that are in the quote unquote resistance. I'm not chastising like we're talking about the organic uh, black people that do have an issue with how they're being policed and how they are being treated in America and other countries. But he, you said you're chastising the people who are cheering cheering the rioting and looting, who are coming out to quote-unquote help you with it, but who will be back home in their gated communities when the ashes have cooled and the corporate media are gone and the cops return to police your neighborhoods. And that, I thought, was absolutely perfectly stated because that's the way that, I mean, that's the kind of the point that I'm trying to make. and, And libertarians and also people like yourself and classic liberals have been trying to communicate for decades, is that, there is an issue with police, and there is an issue with the way in which the society is looking and treating certain communities and the way that they are being treated legally, culturally, et cetera. And to pinpoint this and try to peg it on Donald Trump and root for rioting and looting in the stake of equality and justice is ridiculous. I mean, it's absurd, and it's also insulting to people that are trying to address the root cause because it to- completely distracts from it, and people will, in fact, forget it and move on, having done their virtue signaling on social media. And then we'll go back into comfort. And,
1: and Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, just mention again, I mean, people, you know, uh, uh, should know this. I don't know, you know, they remember it, but, you know, there's a long list of black guys that were killed by the cops, you know, during the uh, Obama uh, uh, years, uh, during the uh, for sure. you know, Obama years. And there was, you know, and there was protest and there were protests and there was rioting after that. Which did not explode into a huge, you know, uh, international, uh, you know, uprising
0: right. and right. When and Eric Gardner was killed, you didn't yeah. have this response, despite the fact that you could argue argue that it was a very similar circumstance.
1: I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't remember people storming the White House.
0: You know, uh, <laughs> no, when, no, I don't remember that either.
1: <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. You know, the 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 you know former CIA director and you know former generals and military mm-hmm. agents and the entirety of the liberal corporate media immediately you know pumping out headlines and statements indicating that Trump is a dictator and the yeah. or I'm sorry, Obama at that time, Obama is a dictator and Obama needs to be removed. And, you know, it's it's, all of this, you know, it just follows its textbook regime change propaganda. And, you know, what, what I hope people will do is look back at history and, you know, look at the responses during the Obama years, and look at the response this time, and be able to separate that organic, authentic, you know, uh, protest uprising from the larger you know, propaganda operation, regime change operation that uh, has been attempted.
0: Well, I I do question whether or not people have, I mean, at this point, it's like we were talking about conditioning. People are so conditioned to believe what the media is pumping out there that I don't know if they're going to be able to wake up. I mean, thank God for the internet. Thank God for, you know, sites like Off Guardian, uh, for Consent Factory, for, you know, for this podcast even, um, getting various ways to reach people out there that aren't this mainstream media. And I think we're seeing some erosion of that. But then, you know, I just was watching today, J.K. Rowling has now been, I guess she's trying to be canceled because she had some comments about, uh, and, I, and I, we don't have to get into whether or not you agree or not with her statements, but basically on biological gender being a thing. And she didn't come out and try to, to you know, say anything cruel about trans people or say that she doesn't support your right to be transgender, but just simply saying that she believes in biological gender. Now you have the internet coming at her, teeth and nails, you know, bared, and you see the cancel culture for almost anybody can come and get you. You know, what do you think about cancel culture? Is this something that we're seeing be intentionally manipulated to forward these specific narratives? Uh, you know, like we we're saying, throwing out these excessive... The, these eccentric positions that you cannot dare to question, well, uh, the mob will come after you.
1: Okay, I'll get a little, I'll get a little philosophical on you again, uh, nice. Brian, because this <laughs> this taps directly back into uh, my whole analysis of you know global capitalism spreading all over the globe and uh, resistance to it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing at the essence, is get, and it also gets to you know to my philosophical problem with capitalism. Um, uh, what, 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 basically the way I see capitalism not as not economically, not as you know a structure to you know manufacture things and sell them and what have you, but as a, as a ruling system, and that's what we have now. Um, uh, capitalism has gone has transformed from an economic system into a power system, into a government system, and what it does, what capitalism basically does is it goes into territories um, that are coded. Mm -hmm. And it decodes those territories of their values, right? So if you have a religious territory, for example, Middle East, Islamic culture, what capitalism needs to do in order to uh, populate and exploit that culture is it needs to decode and get rid of all those religious values. It's okay if people Mm -hmm. still go to the mosque and still have pictures of Muhammad up in their house and stuff like that. Um, But it's more or less like the United States. You know, you can go to church and you can, you know, uh, pray on Sundays and and do all of your stuff as long as you're actually living according to the values of capitalism, Mm -hmm. not according to the values of Christianity or according to the values of Islam. Mm -hmm. So what capitalism does, it needs to do, is it needs to erase all of these old despotic values. And I say despotic values not to be negative, but they're values that come down from an authority, from a king, from a priest, you know, from a culture that says this is the way we are. These are our values and this is what they we want them to be because we want them to be that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what capitalism needs to do is erase all of those values mm-hmm. you know, and replace them with one value, which is exchange value, which is yeah. commodity value, where everything becomes... A commodity. You mentioned the whole transgender issue and, and the cancel culture and what have you. And the way that I read that, you know, I, I read that as exactly this global capitalist machine mm-hmm. dissolving more values. You know, there's no such thing as a man, there's no such thing as a woman, biological sex doesn't matter. It's basically, you know, whatever you decide you are is what you are. Um, and it, this is exactly. The valueless value of capitalism, you know, a a spoon, let me just finish this point, you know, a spoon, a car, the, uh, you know, the sofa that's sitting in your office, these things have no value in and of themselves. Their value is completely determined by the market. Mm -hmm. This is the value, this is the way capitalism works. And it does that by stripping the original despotic value off of these things so that they can be free floating and they can, they can obtain value through exchange value. And this is the same thing that I see happening here.
0: I I mean, I think that you're, from a philosophical standpoint, I think it's really interesting conceptually. And I, I, you know, obviously I, I do, uh, worship at the altar of capitalism. So I, I would disagree in that it's, it's a, it is not a good thing overall. I still think capitalism is a very good thing because it, just because of the benefits it can have for society and raising people out of poverty and, and, uh, and forming cultures in exchange. But I do understand the point you're making, and I do agree with the point that you're making about it, stripping away and monetizing uh, cultural aspects, religious aspects, and also because, and this is something interesting to see play out with Black Lives Matter, for instance, right? All of these corporations, at least regionally, put out Black Lives Matter statements of support. You know, we support this and we support that. And they do this with uh, with many issues. Transgender issues, I'm sure, is the same thing. But you do see them say, okay, we are now going to adopt what we view as uh, what's going to be the winning strategy. You know, whatever culture is going to be the winning strategy, we are now going to align ourselves with that, regardless of whether or not they believe it or not. But because it is advantageous to the company, the corporation, and for them to you know, possibly monetize that in the future or at, at least not lose any money by virtue of uh, people coming at them and trying to, uh, to provide a backlash.
1: Um, I, I I I think I disagree a little bit with that because I just uh, you know again I go a little deeper with it. I, do, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that the corporations are, are are co-opting. I mean to some extent sure they're co-opting whatever is popular, but I I I think it's 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 deeper than that. Again I think that um, what what the system, what the global capitalist system, you know, needs to do is to erase, you know, all of the old values. Before global capitalism, what was there? There were nation states, mm-hmm. right? The nation states, you know, they, they existed for a while. Uh, you know, before that, there were, you know, the empires and the, the you know, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the word I'm looking for, uh, kingdoms. Yes. And um, And what's happening, you know, I think we're in another transition phase, you know, there was a transition phase uh, where we went from, you know, the rule of kings, you know, and aristocracies to the rule of nation states, Mm -hmm. right? And we're in another transition phase now where we're transitioning from the rule of nation states to the rule of global capitalism. Well, um, Rollerball uh, hit the
0: nail on the head with this. Have you ever seen that movie? I'm sorry? It's <laughs> a ridiculous reference, the movie Rollerball with James Caan. Oh, I, yeah, I wish I'd remembered it better. <laughs> it's, just, it's basically the corporations had taken over nation states. Uh, this is not, that's not an original concept, um, and it's sorry to break in, but I just want, I want to point out something that I thought was kind of funny that just popped in my mind, though, is that, uh, and I'm enjoying the, uh, a, a philo- philosophical conversation on this, by the way, but I do think it's kind of interesting in that I'd almost say that you are you are creating uh, with this this viewpoint, this philosophical uh, stance. It's almost leftist conservatism in that you're fighting <laughs> against the new wave of capitalism and wanting to conserve the old uh, the old ways, the old cultures, and as you said, um, allegiances to what was of the past and be that cultural or religious or, or king based or you know or region based. And there is something to that. But at the same time, I mean, it's almost inevitable. I think just with the the way that communications happen that you're going to have a breakdown of these specific cultural bents no matter what. And at the same time, I do lament that. And I'm with you in that I do believe that cultures um, are important to keep and that things should be remembered and should not be torn down. But I wouldn't necessarily put that at the feet of capitalism specifically, but more so just as far as there's, it's inevitable once we have this advancing of technology that um, capitalism is the thing that's going to unite people more than anything, because you don't have to argue so much about whose God is correct uh, or, or what religion is, is correct or what gender is correct when we can simply exchange goods and everybody can enjoy a good, good uh, sit down on the futon.
1: Yeah no I and 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 Brian just you know for for you and your libertarian uh uh, uh listeners you know um again I think the, the 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 distinction that I'm making is is I there's a distinction between capitalism as an economic system
0: and as a power and, structure
1: and capitalism as an ideology okay, is yeah is what I'm talking about. Um, you know, you, you can, for example, uh, you know, capitalism uh, functioned throughout most of the period of nation states. Mm-hmm. And yet national cultures, you know, still maintained their values as national cultures. Mm-hmm. And capitalism was to one degree or another, the economic system within those societies, and what I'm talking about when I say global capitalism and when I'm talking all this philosophical stuff, what I'm talking about is, is this economic system being elevated or transformed into an ideological system, mm-hmm. right, um, where, where now it's not, just, it's, it's not just satisfied to function and to run the economy, yeah. But it now becomes the ideology to which everyone must conform such that, you yeah, such that, yes, people have the freedom to believe in whatever they can be Christians, they can be Muslims, they can be Jews, they what have you. But cap, but globo cap, mm-hmm. yeah, needs to go over to the Middle East and restructure the fuck out of that place right
0: yeah which is what which is actually what america has been trying to do over yeah, the past 50 why?
1: And, and i don't even see it as america i see it as globocap yeah. and the reason and the reason that the middle east needs to be restructured is there are actually people over there who are trying to live according to theocratic values and you can't run a marketplace with people living <laughs> according to
0: theocratic values. <laughs> Certainly can, limited if you can. <laughs>
1: it, it screws the marketplace right up. You right, know?
0: right. <laughs> it,
1: it's, it's fine if they say they believe in whatever and they go to the mosque and go to the church and what have you. But if they're actually trying to run their whole society mm. based on theocratic values, that's an impediment to the market. Yeah. And this, yeah. Is, and, and this is what I'm talking about. To get it back to what you were saying, you know, the the idea of there being men and women and having sex biological sex this is also an impediment to the marketplace it's mm-hmm. the same machine Brian dissolving one set of values here dissolving one set of values there if it helps your 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 uh, you and your libertarian uh, listeners it's not capitalism the economic system that is doing this mm-hmm. it is global capitalism as a As an ideological power structure.
0: Yeah, I think I think we could get behind that. Don't worry. I don't think uh, I think having clarified it and and going deeper in the conversation definitely uh, clarifies what you're talking about more. And I think that uh, a lot of my audience would agree with what you're saying. And that um, yeah, as I said, it's it's definitely something economically support. But again, getting into what we're talking about earlier, uh, global power structure. Uh, companies and governments working hand in hand to push, as you said, the ideology is something completely different. So I think we are in agreement. We went a long way around, but I think we're in agreement. (laughs) Um, Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Just tell me a little bit, what are you working on now? Uh, Where can people find, you know, I said Consent Factory, but where else can people find your work? And uh, I just want to say, I've had a wonderful time speaking with you. And if opportunity presents itself, I'd love to have you back on again sometime
1: i 'd be happy to come on any anytime, actually, this is uh, you know just one of the best interviews that i 've had someone let me get into all of the crazy philosophical stuff uh, that is <laughs> what I think is really interesting um, I, I think it 's important too, Brian, because I think we are we are really still at the beginning of a of a, of a very huge transitional shift which Mm. is the end of the cold war and you know power regimes are changing ideological regimes are changing and i don't think any uh, anyone has the answers to you know what comes next and where we're going um, so, I think it's, I just think it's important that people think about these things. Um, you can get my stuff, I mean, you can Google me, you can go to the Consent Factory, um, you, uh, you, know, so you can get my books uh, anywhere, as I said, pretty much any online bookseller has them. Um, or you can walk into your local bookstore if you still have a local bookstore. Um, and uh, what I'm working on right now, uh, I'm trying to put together volume two of those Consent Factory essays. Uh, which covers uh, the years 2018 and 2019. Volume one was 2016 and 2017, uh, which is why I subtitled it the uh, the Trumpocalypse. Yes. <laughs> and the horror appeared. And these years that I'm covering now are exactly, it's Russiagate, it's the rise of Russiagate, the fall of Russiagate. And um, and also really the rollout of the whole fascism hysteria yeah. Um, yeah. that the corporate media has been pumping out. Um,
0: uh, so that's what's next for me. All right, fantastic. Well, I uh, will definitely be uh, reading and sharing as much as I can. Again, I, I really enjoy your writing style. I am greatly enjoying Zone 23. I'm about a quarter of the way through, and I was trying to finish more of that up to, to get into a little bit more, but I, with a four-month-old baby at home uh, – Time is tough to come by these days. Um, But yeah, greatly enjoying it so far. It's very, very dystopian. And as I said, really plays well into the propaganda machine, you know, tying into the view pads, the all-encompassing view pads and uh, kind of, you know, big screens, broadcasting the day's propaganda and also the corporatization. And again, I would say crony crony capitalism of the media worshipping at the altar of these all-powerful corporate entities that are then engaged by the state to, uh, to impose draconian laws upon the populace. So uh, that's all I can say about it for now, but really enjoying it. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just so thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I, I guess said I'll hope to have you on soon.
1: It's been a pleasure, Brian. Anytime.
0: So that wraps up my interview with the great C.J. Hopkins. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And as always, anytime I have somebody that doesn't go lockstep with libertarianism, I expect some pushback and feedback. Of course, you can go comment, weigh in, join the conversation at the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can join that on Facebook. Just type in Lions of Liberty Forum and uh, it'll ask you where you heard the show. Just say you heard it right here from your good pal, Brian McWilliams. Just want to make sure you're not some knuckball spammer. Uh, so, yeah, come on in, weigh in. We can talk about the philosophy of capitalism, the ideology versus the economy. And uh, I think it'll be a good time. But it's always nice to engage people that aren't in complete lockstep with you. This is how you expand your mind. As we were talking about, it's always good to not only expand your mind and and look at other viewpoints, but guys, this is how you sharpen your arguments. This is how you sharpen your effectiveness to communicate. Because if you're just going to yell slogans at somebody, you're not going to get through to them ever. So thanks again to CJ Hopkins for joining us. I want to give some shout outs at the end of the show too. First and foremost to Alex Horseman over at Libertas Bella's. And uh, they just started this company. It's a brand new T-shirt company. I myself am rocking a new Tiananmen Square T-shirt. Love it. And Alex is a good dude. Hung out with him at Porkfest. He was also with Ammo.com for a while and helped throw us some support from that company. So please do check them out and I'll post a photo of myself in the uh, Alliance of Liberty forum. You can find them at LibertasBella.com. Of course, LibertasBella means beautiful liberty. And also, as always, I want to give a shout out to Goulash Media and Dan Smots of the Systems Down podcast, who has helped me out with all the graphic design stuff that I like to do. Uh, Rico and Odie and I, by the way, just launched a new comedy review podcast for Bravo and TLC shows called Bravo and Beer. And, of course, Dan helped out with the logo for that as well. So check that out. It's going to be funny. It's going to be very non-political. So it's a good one uh, to watch, listen to with your wife. It's definitely going to be explicit. It's definitely still going to be us, uh, but just talking about the dumbest of reality TV and giving our trademarked take on it. I'll say that. So, guys, again, from me, Brian McWilliams, want to remind you, listen to Mark on Mondays with the flagship Lions of Liberty show. And, of course, John Odermatt with the very vital Felony Friday looking at criminal justice reform. Otherwise, I'll be here for you every single Wednesday. So for me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged into Liberty.